Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have Neil Hamlet. Neil has technically just about to retire as a consultant in public health medicine. He's a doctor in the Ockhills Mountain Rescue Team. He's an outdoor instructor and spends most of his time messing about on boats and on the hills. Responder for basics. Neil, thanks very much for coming on and I'll let you explain what's going to happen today. So today is going to be a big day in that I get to sit in your seat and you become the guest for a change, Dave. So I believe your chosen topic is suspension trauma. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm not quite sure how I managed to get talked into this after having had the best part of a year on the comfier side of this conversation. Well, let's see what it's like in the hot seat. So... I'm public health, as we've already said, and definitions are really important in my world. So can you define what is suspension trauma and does it hide any under any other names? The short answer is no. Suspension trauma is a completely rubbish term. It doesn't explain anything about what's going on in terms of the syndrome that we see presenting. It's been called all sorts of things, from harness hang syndrome to orthostatic hypotension. It's been associated with things like rescue collapse, which I think we'll touch on later on. But I guess what all of these things are trying to get to is a syndrome that is seen when people are suspended or held at an angle for a prolonged period of time um, and are generally immobile. And they have a a series of clinical symptoms, uh, including those that we'd normally see around about syncope or fainting, that if left untreated can progress pretty rapidly to death. Mm, That doesn't sound good. So how did we find out about this? Is there a bit of a, a history to tell about suspension trauma? Yeah, I think the first time where it crops up in the medical literature is is in 1972, Innsbruck, where the great and the good of Alpine Mountain Rescue started to discuss cases of climbers who were found suspended in their harnesses and had signs of life whilst they're in the harnesses and died at some point thereafter, but without obvious traumatic signs of death when they were examined at post-mortem. So there was a lot of thinking about what could be causing these apparently healthy climbers who were young, otherwise fit, and not traumatically injured to have a cardiac arrest that was irrecoverable. Actually, if you dig into the non-medical literature a bit more, there are quite a few cases before this of climbers dying while suspended in harnesses without apparent injury. And even the, the famous deaths on the death wall of the Eiger, there were two climbers that were suspended there and may well have been affected by harness hang syndrome or suspension injury. And I guess if we dig even further back, the physiological mechanisms that we see in harness hang syndrome or in suspension trauma are very similar to what you see in crucifixion. And we can kind of dig into some of the physiology around what happens and, and perhaps why it happens. But there's certainly a reasonable school of thought that one of the causes of death within crucifixion is a very similar mechanism that we see in young, fit, 
climbers who are suspended for a length of time and, and lose cardiac output. Okay, so that's quite a history. And we recognise it in climbers and hopefully with the demise of the Roman Empire, there's not so much crucifixion going on these days. Who else is getting affected in today's world by suspension trauma? In amongst the 70s, when it became a bit sexy amongst the Alpine medical rescue community, um, there was also the birth and the, the rapid growth of the offshore oil industry. And there, there was a crossover between the climbing world and the industrial safety world, and a very rapidly growing culture of risk minimization and trying to set safety standards has meant that people that work at height are very tightly governed and quite understandably have got pretty exacting standards in terms of their health and safety. So we do see it in people who work at height. We see it in recreational climbers, in cavers, anybody that sits or lies in a harness suspended for any length of time. But actually, there are also reports of this happening within within patients. So either through winching patients out of uh, perhaps technical terrain or out of water, or if you strap patients to stretches and maintain them at a, at a steep angle for a protracted period of time, we can cause this as part of their rescue. So I think the more we understand about the, the pathophysiology, the more we realise that it's actually pretty applicable once you get away from your standard roadside pre-hospital care. This is fascinating. So it seems from what we've heard so far that prevention is a whole lot easier than any forms of cure once it's taken shape. So how do we prevent this condition in the first place? And what's in place that we're aware of that makes it less likely today than it was? All of the, the clinical syndromes we see, be that crucifixion or your sport rock climber who falls off a, a route, they all end up immobile. And that's the absolute critical first step. If somebody is mobile, whether they're in a harness or in a stretcher, and they're able to move their limbs, they're able to maintain venous return. And we'll come on to the pathophysiology in a bit. But, but that's the critical step to avoiding this entire syndrome is maintaining venous return. So any environment where people are suspended in a, in a vertical or near vertical position or where they are immobile and held off vertical means that they will have some degree of venous pooling and therefore are at risk from harness hang or from, from suspension trauma. Sure. So we're now moving into talking about the, the pathophysiology. You've mentioned pooling of blood. Can you expand and unpack that a bit more for us? Yes, with the caveat that this is all kind of a work in progress. As I say, we're 50 odd years from when this was first discussed in the medical literature with any degree of depth. And it's really only been the last three years where we've started to see reasonable quality, randomized, controlled and peer reviewed uh, scientific studies. So most of what was submitted as evidence in the early days was pretty anecdotal. There was a lot of expert opinion. And as with many expert opinions, much of it turns out to be complete nonsense. In your average everyday functioning human, we move around pretty much constantly. And by moving around, moving our limbs, we are activating a muscular pump that returns venous blood through a series of one-way valves back to the heart. What we see in patients that aren't moving around for whatever reason is that they faint. And the example here to, to have in your mind is the, the soldier on parade on a hot day. They'll be a little bit dehydrated from the heat and from the fact that they're wearing full fancy dress. 
and they will be standing very still, not able to activate the calf muscle and thigh muscle pumps, and they'll go all peely-wally and then end up fainting. Now what you see when they hit the floor is that pretty rapidly they will regain colour to their cheeks and that uh, vagal episode of vagus nerve overstimulation to the heart, which is, will have caused a drop in blood pressure, a reflex bradycardia, and occasionally a sort of a period of, of absent ventilation, will all be pretty transitory. And as blood rushes back in, because the body has stabilised in that horizontal position, everything returns to normal pretty quickly. And again, sticking with things that most folk have exposure to, if you do have somebody who faints in a seated position, it takes them much longer to recover. And sometimes you can see seizure-like activity because the brain becomes hypoxic because it's not getting circulation to it. The extreme of this is if somebody faints in a seated position for any length of time, they don't get that cardiovascular return and they can end up having a cardiac arrest as a result of it. So we know that venous pooling exists. What happens when you're in a harness is a little bit more difficult to unpick. There was some thought originally that the harness itself constricted blood flow. But actually the designs of modern sport harnesses all lift the pressure points away from vital structures, particularly the femoral area. So there's no direct compression of the vessels within the femoral area. And that doesn't make any logical sense. So about two years ago, they did a, a study looking with ultrasound at femoral veins in climbers sat motionless in a sit harness, in a conventional sport climbing harness. And what they saw was that pretty rapidly the venous diameter engorged. Now, a normal adult can put 20 to 30% of their blood volume into their legs without having significant circulatory collapse initially. Um, and what happens is that that blood pools there and is then no longer available to, to the body. Now, in a person who was sitting or standing, they would start to feel a little bit lightheaded and either lie down or get up and move, both of which would have the effect of returning that blood to the heart and putting it back into circulation. When a climber is suspended in a harness immobile, whether that be because of pain or because of a loss of consciousness, they don't have that option. And the, the blood then remains static within the limbs, doesn't return to the circulating volume, and you end up with the, an effective loss of circulating volume within the, the central system. In addition, the blood that's in the limbs will still have extraction from it, so you still have cells taking oxygen from that blood. And one of the side effects that was noted when they were doing this study was that most of the volunteers had blue cyanotic feet. And when they measured the oxygen saturations in the hanging limbs, they were profoundly low. That comes into effect when we start to look at what happens when patients are, are recovered from this hanging event. So we've got people that are dangling immobile. They have pooling within their peripheries they get to that kind of critical point at which they start to lose consciousness. And the normal effect of losing consciousness would be collapsed to the ground, which would precipitate that return of blood to the core. In most sit harnesses, what happens is that the head will dip below the pelvis, but actually the blood doesn't return to the core because the hanging climber is suspended by a point just below their belly button. Um, and whilst the head is lower than the legs, there's not enough pressure within the venous system to get that pooled blood up and over the hump of the pelvis and back to the head. So you still end up with a patient who's lost consciousness, now has got pooled blood, 
um, and is not able to return it to their circulating volume. A lot of potentially nasty things going on there. How quickly can it all start to go pear-shaped from the moment that you find yourself hanging, conscious or unconscious, to the syncopal features beginning to show? Yeah, this is a bit that caught me slightly by surprise because having worked in a climbing wall before and, and having spent a fair bit of my youth messing about in harnesses, I assumed that this was something that would happen, you know, maybe an hour or so into hanging motionless in a harness. When they've gone back and done studies on this, the kind of good quality evidence suggests that in a rear-mounted harness, so one where the attachment point is on the spine side where you're hanging face down, you can get symptoms in uh, as little as seven minutes. In a sit harness, that can happen in as little as 15 minutes. And by the time you get out to close to an hour, 90% of patients have got symptoms of presyncope or syncope. Now, some of the other studies will quote times as short as three minutes of complete immobility to have the initial presyncopal symptoms. And some of this is quite vague, and it's difficult to unpick whether this is has got a cognitive overlay on it. There is definitely not great science here, but certainly the answer is a lot quicker than most of us think. And in the context of an otherwise injured patient, so a fallen climber or a, a worker on a rig who's had an accident, and the complexities of getting to somebody who's dangling in midair, actually seven minutes is not a lot of time. Absolutely. And if we think of the, the time to scene for your standard mountain rescue team, or indeed arrival at a work-related incident onshore, let alone offshore, what can we do about it on arrival? So I think the key thing to emphasise here is that, as you rightly point out, time is critical and almost everything should be a buddy-buddy action. So this is something that the, the best fix is, is going to be done by your climbing partner, other people on the crag, or if you're at work in a work environment, then your co-workers in that sort of work and height environment. And essentially, simple things, we need to get somebody down onto a flat surface. So take them from being that fainted soldier who's being held upwards by the harness and lie them down flat. Now, that doesn't need to be done by a medical specialist. That doesn't need to be done by an advanced paramedic or somebody with particular rescue training. That can be done by anybody who has got the skills to safely get a climber into a horizontal position. That sounds fairly straightforward. And is it more complex if they actually are unconscious? What additional things do we need to be looking out for? So here, just like with any trauma history, we do need to have a little bit of a think about the mechanism of injury. Because most climbers, most people who wear harnesses, be that at work or at play, don't hang around immobile for long periods of time unless they're being paid to for a scientific study. So in terms of things that make people remain motionless, that is often precipitated by trauma. And I think this is where that term suspension trauma comes in, because a lot of the time these folk have had a bang to the head or they themselves have fallen for a, a decent distance. So we need to have all of that kind of usual trauma mindset, thinking about C-spine control, thinking about the mechanism of injury, and thinking about the kind of principles of that CABC assessment. So if you do have somebody who's, who's dangling immobile, and you've got the option to gently lower them to the ground, then crack on and do that, be they conscious or unconscious. If you can't get them to the ground, as you point out, then things are a little bit more tricky. 
If they're conscious, you can tell them to waggle their legs. And a bit like what we tell soldiers on parade, you get them to wiggle their toes and make sort of miniature walking actions with their feet to try and keep those muscle pumps working. So that with feet and arms in a conscious patient is ideal. In an unconscious patient, we might have to think about how we can support them in the position that we find them, albeit dangling off the ground, to try and minimise that venous pooling. So we're now in the process of seeking to rescue them. And I guess this is a good time to come back to that rescue collapse that we mentioned right at the start. Is this the point at which rescue collapse becomes important, the way in which we're managing positioning of the patient during the rescue process? Yeah, so I guess we should probably rewind briefly back to 1972 and to those experts sat in Austria. And they decided that whatever the mechanism that was causing these people to have a, a vagal type problem, if you returned that pooled blood rapidly to the heart, you would have cold, hypoxic, acidotic, and likely potassium rich blood all coming rushing back to the heart in one go. And that would make the already irritable myocardium prone to having a cardiac arrest. Now, that's not without its merits. And certainly when you look in theatres, releasing of tourniquets has got a significant effect on the myocardium. And the anaesthetists get quite upset if you let go of tourniquets without letting them know and having some pre-warning. What was thought to be rescue collapse was a kind of combination of these factors. And the thought was that by putting people from a hanging type position where they're being dangled and their limbs are all dependent, to rapidly return them to being completely flat was putting a massive wash of cold, acidotic, potassium-rich blood into the heart and causing cardiac arrest. There have been a couple of studies more recently looking at this and looking at the effect of that big dump of blood on the myocardium using echo probes to watch the dilation of the heart. And again, in an otherwise young, fit, healthy heart, this is unlikely to be the primary cause of cardiac arrest. And certainly the benefits of getting somebody flat and getting that venous return outweigh the risks of there being a transient drop in temperature, rise in potassium levels and drop in pH that you would see within the sort of central circulation. So rescue collapse has been a little bit debunked although there's certainly patients that are at high risk of having ongoing problems and we we want to be ideally in a position where we can preempt that so having access to cardiac life support defibrillation and ideally a team of people who are able to manage the complications of these patients would be ideal so we've got our patient off the cliff or down the side of the wall and they're now supine on the deck how do we go about resuscitation? Is there any additional things we need to be thinking about? The straightforward answer and the kind of, you know, the basics mantra is that you're going to approach this in a systematic reproducible way. So that CABC algorithm that has been drilled into every basics responder, and I'm sure every every other person of any discipline that, that listens to this. Now, oftentimes where you start the stabilization process may not be where you are sort of definitively rescued from. In the mounting context, it may be that you can get a climber to a ledge, but actually it's going to require further sets of rescuing to get the patient all the way off or to somewhere that is, quotes, safe. But the key thing is as soon as you can get them flat and level, 
you need to go back to the basics. You need to make sure that they're not catastrophically bleeding, that they have an open and patent airway that is ideally protected. We need to assess their breathing and have a think about circulation. When we're in that circulation bit of the algorithm, we probably need to think a little bit about fluid management. And here life gets a little bit tricky. These are patients who ideally would benefit from some fluid. And in the pre-hospital setting, that's likely to be salty water. That comes with a big caveat. If they are traumatically injured from a fall or from something hitting them, then we're going to have to balance the risks of giving cold acidotic saline to a traumatically injured patient against the benefits of giving them a little bit of fluid support and trying to dilute out some of the toxins that will come back with that returned venous blood. We probably also need to have a think in a more structured, formalized response about how we're going to manage the sort of known complications. And these really are going to be around potassium management. And depending on the length of time that the patients remained immobile, thinking about thromboembolism. We've got pooled blood, and certainly if somebody's been hanging for a prolonged period of time in a harness, the chance of having clinically significant clots forming in that blood are fairly high. I don't have any good data about how long it takes to form clots, but certainly any rescue collapse, I would have PE pretty high on my list of things to to try and manage, and I would want to be excluding it rather than than waiting to find out a post-mortem, I guess. So we've got our patient, they're on the deck, we're resuscitating them with the equipment that we've got to hand, presumably called or whatever help we can get. When the teams in the red suits drop out the sky, what additional things can they bring to this particular party? In many respects, not a huge amount. And certainly the the key to managing these is good basic care, getting them out of the technical environment that has caused this and, and allowing that venous return back to the heart. The management of complications is going to be difficult. These are patients who may well end up needing intensive care support. And as I say, it, this often happens, uh, certainly as far as the literature is concerned, in patients who have other traumatic injuries. So the management of the traumatic brain injury or other visceral injuries uh, is going to need some pretty specialist input as well. Once they get back to a hospital, then managing and aggressively correcting potassium derangement is going to be key. And having an early index of suspicion and potentially prophylactic management of compartment syndrome of rhabdomyolysis and of kidney injury associated with the turn of this pretty manky, pretty toxic blood back to the heart. There's certainly a lot of case report evidence around compartment syndromes in patients who have had significant periods where they've had limb dependency in the absence of, of other trauma to that limb. So yeah, these are patients that need to go to a hospital that understands what they're dealing with and has got the potential to intervene if needs be. Thank you very much, Dave. You've taken us through the full story from uh, what it is and how we found out about it to how we can prevent it, what we can do and who can come to the party and what they can do. Before we sign off, you have a habit of asking people for three top tips. And I'm wondering if you've got three top tips to give us to take away today. It's always much more unfair when I'm on the receiving end of that question. So I think key things to take away. Firstly, is that this happens quickly. And I think the actual hard times are less relevant than the concept that this happens 
in less time than it would take to get a standard roadside ambulance in a city to you. So the mainstay of the initial treatment has got to be bystander action and may need to be telephone advice to that bystander as to what they should be doing. Number one, it happens quickly. Number two is also about incidents in some respects, and that is that we are potentially the cause of some of this. If we put somebody on a stretcher and dangle them in a feet downwards position more than 45 degrees for a prolonged period of time, then we will see venous pooling because they're not going to be able to activate those muscles. So in a mountain rescue environment or a technical extraction environment, having that thought process that actually these are patients who are at risk of of suspension trauma and starting to try and make some mitigation, be that getting the patient to horizontal intermittently or encouraging them if they're conscious to move their limbs is going to be pretty key. And I think the third thing would be to have a look at some of the data. This is an area that is changing rapidly and where new research is coming out. I was involved in putting together a guideline for the Scottish Trauma Network, which is a a year or so old now, but hopefully is a reasonable starting place to look at. But certainly if this piques your interest and if you work in an environment where uh, dangling off things is a possibility, then I would encourage you to get in amongst it because it's definitely a growth area for research. Okay. And I believe that that guideline is available on the app with basics responders uh, have access to. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. And it should be accessible through the Scottish Ambulance Service and the EMRS app as well. Excellent. I've got one final question, Dave, and I just have to ask it. Which do you prefer, interviewing or being interviewed? We all want to know. <laughs> I have to say it's a, it's a much more comfortable experience when I can sit back and think deep thoughts and come up with awkward questions than having to actually answer them myself. So uh, I'm definitely happier on the interviewing side of the chair. Well, we'll just have to see where that goes going forward. But thank you very much for giving us your time. Uh, No matter which side of the desk you've been sitting at. Yes, we hopefully none of us will experience this personally. And there's a lot we can do to help other people if we come across it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Neil. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.